0: Jessie, that threesome tale last week was short and sad. What do you have for me this week?
1: When a sultry vixen sets her sights on men and money, nothing gets in her way, especially not her pesky husbands. I'm Andy Cassette. I'm Jessie Prey, and this is Love Murder.
0: Hi, Jesse. Hi, Andy. Okay, so this week sounds nuts, but before we dig in, a couple of quick things. First, thank you so much to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review us. It makes a huge difference for new people discovering the show. So if you have, thank you. And if you haven't yet, we'd really appreciate
1: it. Absolutely. The other thing that makes a huge difference is when you shout the show out on your socials. We're at Love Murder Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And nothing is better than when you share your excitement about a new show and tag us in it. Speaking of of it, we want to give a huge extra special shout out to one of our Love Murder listeners this week. Heather has been an amazing support system um, through our journey, suggesting the show to so many of her friends. And we are so excited because she got engaged the love of her life, Ryan, this week. Yay. So yay. Go Heather and Ryan. You guys are meant to be together. We're so excited for you. And also, Andy, when she told me she was engaged, um, she said that she's been dating Ryan for five whole years years. So she's definitely an Andy and not a Jesse.
0: Good on you, Heather. Also, if you have any case ideas, please email us at lovers at lovemurder.love. It's awesome seeing your ideas and suggestions. So
1: keep them coming. And finally, we want to give a shout out to another new podcast we've been absolutely loving. It's called Disturbed and it is well disturbing. It's a great podcast that I came across and they really do a lot of interesting stuff with true crime and true horror. The first episode is an interview with a Ted Bundy survivor. Whoa. And they also have an incredible case about Savannah Greywind, a eight months pregnant woman that was mysteriously abducted. And uh, they also do a lot of really creepy real life stories that come from Reddit that are like perfectly chilling and just great when you're walking alone in the woods.
0: Ooh, you know we love our Reddit stories.
1: <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, check them out on Twitter at disturbed underscore pod. They're also on Instagram at, at disturbed podcast or the web at disturbpodcast.com. All right. Then I think with that, we are ready to jump into today's juicy story. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, I'm not even going to tell you about this wild woman we're covering today. I'm just going to get right into it. Are you ready? I am. In the early morning hours of November 20th, 1988 in Denver, Colorado, a police criminalist and his crew are poking through the smoldering remains of a burned out house. Arson is suspected and the belief is that the owner is away. At least that's the hope. The owner of the house is a man named Glenn Harrelson, a beloved member of the community and veteran firefighter. The firemen at the scene are aghast. A goddamn fire has ruined the home of one of their own. A goddamned arsonist has targeted one of their own. But thankfully, no body is recovered at the scene. So where is Glenn? He's not due at the fire station until his shift starts at 6.30 in the morning. One of the men suggests he might be at his wife's home out in Trinidad, Colorado. While the question lingers, the criminalist prowls through the burned-out shell of a home recording his findings. There are coins scattered across the living room. Maybe a burglary, a young officer suggests? No, the criminalist doesn't think so. Beyond the coins, nothing has been disturbed. No one has ransacked the drawers in the bedrooms, nor the closet. No one has taken the firearms that are displayed on a shelf. The guest room remains untouched. In the basement, a chair is pushed over to the window with a missing grate. This would indicate a point of entry, but the spider webs around the window are still intact. It was set up to look like that's how the arsonist got in. Whoever set the fire had to come in through a door. The house is unbelievably secure, burglar alarms and window grates with panic buttons for emergency release. The intruder must have had a key or been invited. But if they were invited, where is Glenn? To get answers, the criminalist heads to the origin of the flames, an area where accelerant was clearly used to start the blaze. It's inside the garage entrance of the house. At first glance, there is nothing but debris in the charred crawl space. He further inspects with his flashlight and then orders his crew to set up the high-powered halogen lights he has brought with him to flood the area with blinding clarity. Six halogens blast into the hole and the first thing he can make out as his eyes adjust is a seared gasoline can. Beyond that, he can make out some charred fabric. Stop for a moment and imagine the smell of the scene, the smoke, the still smoldering remains of the house, the melted plastic and shorted electrical wires. Just disgusting. And then, horrifyingly, In the cold, bright light of the halogens, the sight and smell of a burned human body. Twisted and contorted, the corpse's muscles constricted into unnatural shapes as the result of the incineration of tendon and flesh. We've got a homicide, the criminalist remarks. The skull didn't explode, someone notes. Now, this was incredible first knowledge for me. I'd never heard this before and it blew my mind. You might even say it exploded my mind. (laughs) This indicates that the man in the crawlspace had died from a gunshot wound to the head prior to the burning. Without the piercing by a bullet or the fracture by a hard instrument, the human skull almost always explodes in the heat of fire. What? What? Isn't that
0: insane? So I guess the hole like allows for a certain amount of oxygen to get in that doesn't...
1: Exactly. Wow. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't get like trapped in there and the pressure. So it releases the pressure essentially, which I had never thought of, which is terrifying.
0: Well, and I guess it helps him figure out that he didn't die from the fire. Exactly. So the
1: corpse belongs to Glenn Harrelson, of course. His body so badly burned, the firemen have to hold their breath not to break it into a million pieces. His face almost was completely gone just a cavernous hole where his mouth once was open wide in an internal scream Ugh. it's not a way to go man no i mean honestly i'm kind of glad he was shot first i'd much rather be shot than burned, burned alive, alive. Ugh. no thank you it's not long before investigators cast a suspicious eye towards the fireman's thrice-married widow, a woman with a reputation in town, a woman whose second husband also died in mysterious circumstances. <clears throat> Just where is Sharon Fuller Nelson Harrelson? And perhaps more importantly, who is she? Whoa, Let's wait. find out, Sharon, shall we? Sharon Nelson what? She's Sharon Fuller Nelson Harrelson. Stop it. Oh, if you want to give get her uh, maiden name in there too, and her middle name, she's Sharon Lynn Douglas Fuller Nelson Harrelson. She's kept all of the last names. Like <laughs> I think she's collecting them. She's just collecting them. She's like like aristocracy from a, a yeah. random European country right now Man, with all her names.
0: That is says something
1: about her right off the bat. We haven't even taken our husbands' names. We still got one. I know. <laughs> Okay, let's find out oh. about our girl, Sharon. Shall we? Shall we? Sharon Lynn Douglas, that's her first original name, Thank was you. born in 1945 to a poor religious family. In 1963, three days after JFK was gunned down in Dallas, 18-year-old Sharon donned a poofy white wedding dress and married young minister Mike Fuller. So she's she's really young. She's only 18. She had not wanted to marry him. She had cried when the invitations were sent out. Her mother dismissed her saying, you'd be a damn fool to pass up this chance. He's going to be a minister. He's making something of himself. Later, Sharon recalled her thoughts at the time, quote, they were reinforcing this little girl in me that would marry up. Maybe if you marry somebody that's all white and clean and happy, you'll be okay. You won't have to deal with some of the things from your childhood. You won't have to deal with your feelings of, I'm not good enough which is totally a tragic and horrible reason to marry somebody. And you can tell just from that quote that not great things has happened to her in her life.
0: Did they cover any of that?
1: Yeah, so they'll get into it a little bit later, but it appears that A, her parents were super duper religious and very, very strict. And I know that a lot of people in the time were, but it seems like her father was uh, physically abusive in like corporal punishment style. And also that there was potentially two different occurrences Occurrences of an elder man at their church touching her inappropriately. Yeah. And at some point she even says to her mom, she's like recalling the molestation and her mom's like, no, you would have said something like you're so outspoken and you're so, you know, strong. You would have absolutely said something. So I think you're just remembering it wrong. (laughs) Like, excuse me? What? (laughs) Yeah. So I think that she had a complicated relationship with her parents. And it seems like her parents always put what was better for the church or what looked better in front of what was actually good for Sharon. I was going to
0: say, if they're, you know, completely negating what she's saying and just obviously putting the church first, if they're that
1: religious, the church,
0: someone at the church could not do that
1: exactly and that's also why she's only 18 when they're pushing her to marry this minister yeah yeah because for a like low income level family i feel like marrying the minister and being like the woman that sits in the front pew and is like the minister's wife was really like an amazing come up you yeah. know For sure. So five years into the marriage, after hopping from Ohio Town to Ohio Town for Mike's career, the Fullers made Cleveland their permanent home. Sharon is now 23, and she is bored as fuck. They are Seventh-day Adventist, which promotes an extremely healthy lifestyle. They are not supposed to drink, use drugs, or tobacco. They also aren't allowed to touch red meat, pork, refined foods, or caffeine. Ooh. So – there they get no fun. Her job as a minister's wife is to serve punch, look good, teach Bible lessons, and help out at church camp. And even their so-called fun is boring to Sharon. Mike's idea of a rollicking Saturday night is to watch Mission Impossible, the TV show, and eat <laughs> a bowl of buttered popcorn. Oh, yeah, that's like the real like naughty, wild thing to do is eat that buttered popcorn.
0: I mean, he's kind of like on point with like quarantine lifestyle..
1: That's <laughs> like a- they were just Netflix and chill before it was a thing. Yeah. Mission Impossible and popcorn. <laughs> and buttered popcorn. Butter, I'll butter your popcorn. <laughs> so it's 1968 and Sharon is young and hot and she's really aching to like liven up her life. At this point, she starts wearing like really tight clothes, unbuttoning <laughs> buttons, raising her hemlines. She is this gorgeous, really curvy brunette with wavy hair and deep set brown eyes. She has a perfect hourglass figure, like a generous chest, tiny waist, and like ample hips. She looks like a young genie triple horn, if you can remember what she looks like. Yep. She's gorgeous. Yeah. She's gorgeous. Yeah. We'll definitely put pictures of both Sharon and genie like back when she was like young, on the Instagram so you guys can see the comparison. So she's like really, really sexy and she's starting to enjoy the way men look at her and she starts secretly drinking and smoking cigarettes. So so she's getting a little wild. And in order to have more freedom, she starts a job as a secretary at a Cleveland printing business. And now within a month, she starts an affair with her 50-year-old married boss. What? Yeah, it's not a great idea. How old is she at the time? She's 23. So, I mean, this guy is, like, older than her father.
0: Yeah, And he's married. Yeah. Yep. And, and so the affair goes on.
1: He's married and he has two kids. So – Just not a good look over here, Sharon. And this is going to be the first of many, many poorly thought out affairs. So the affair goes on for months until at the end of 1968, Sharon finds out that her birth control has failed and she is pregnant. Oh, no. Yeah. And it's almost absolutely her lover's and not her husband's. So she passes it off as her husband's because she doesn't really have much of a choice. The lover doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He's like, just have you and your husband raise it. And her husband seems like a little excited about the idea of having a baby. And But it seems like it's more for optics. Like he's a good preacher and a good family man. And now he's going to have a child. It looks good you know, for the greater congregation rather than he's like genuinely excited for them to have a child, you know? So she finds out exactly how Mike feels about her one night when they're having people over. and, And because the Seventh Day Adventists don't, you know, drink, when they socialize, a lot of times they would just like come over and have like soda and watch a television program together. So she's pregnant and she passes out on the couch one night while they're entertaining some other couples. And when she wakes up, she's on the couch and she She can hear him, like, just off in the other room, and he's telling their guests that he's never loved Sharon, that she's, like, a millstone around his neck and, like, his cross to bear. What? So, yeah. So she's pregnant, and she's finding out that he's never loved her. And so I think that even though she's already having the affair, she's probably really emotional. She's hormonal. And now she's fucking pissed. So she knows that their relationship is doomed, and it seems like both of them somewhere inside are acknowledging that this marriage was the worst mistake of their lives. So their baby, Rochelle, is born June 1st, 1969, and she brings no respite to her warring parents. Like, every, they're getting in fights all the time. And if you think about their circumstances for a second, you can totally understand why. They live in a tiny duplex in Cleveland in the summertime. There's no air conditioning. Conditioning, it's hot. It's terrible. His office has been converted into a nursery, and he's like pissed about it because that was where he like prepared all his sermons and everything. And now he's upset. He doesn't have a place to go in his own home. He's no help with the baby. She's desperate, and she's also recovering from giving birth. It's just an altogether terrible time. So they end up in a huge fight, and she is just ready to get divorced. She wants him to get her an apartment, and she wants to move out. So he refuses. Of of course, because ministers can't get divorced. It would just set a terrible example. Yeah. So just live in so misery like,
0: forever. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> As your sacrifice. So, so he's like, absolutely not. You're not moving anywhere. We're gonna get through this. And she's just so desperate and just like lashing out on him at him that she reveals the baby isn't his. Mm-hmm. So of course Some he loses his damn mind. Yeah. Like she just was ready to give it back at him. Yeah. Um, So he demands that she reveal who it is. And he wasn't like familiar exactly with her job or anything. And so she's like tries to not tell him. And then finally she's like, well, I'll give you his name, but you can't approach him. And he's like, fine, just tell me his name. Tell me his name. So she tells him her boss's name and he goes and gets the phone book and looks him up and finds his address. Yeah. And so then he peels out. So she ends up calling a mutual acquaintance and is like, hey, I I screwed up. I had an affair with this guy. I told Mike he's on his way to confront him. And if he does, he could either hurt the guy or hurt himself or he could really cause a scandal in the church if they see that their ministers going over to like beat some guy up, right? So she gets the friend to intervene and basically the friend gets there like right at the same time Mike does and talks him off the ledge. And she says later, it was basically like all night I've had enough of you. You've given me enough digs. You've put me down long enough. This is going to be the ultimate blow, buddy. She's not even yours. So that was the point to hurt him in this and They have an extremely toxic marriage at this point, but they don't really see a way out of it. They're both young. They both are very religious. And I I don't think she's actually very religious. I think it's just by virtue of her her birth and her parents and her husband, she's religious. So they move around the Midwest a little bit and finally end up having another baby girl named Denise, born in 1974. I know, Rochelle and Denise. Um, And they settle in Durham, North Carolina. It seems like Denise is actually Mike's. So it seemed like there was a period of time where they had reconciled somewhat. Um, And there was also a time that they seemed moderately happy in North Carolina until Sharon starts up yet another blistering affair with a congregant at their church. Stop. Yeah, so she's starts having an affair with one of the churchgoers at Mike's own church. Married? Uh, he's not married. This guy's not married. Okay, So good. this time she actually considers leaving Mike for good and being with this guy because he's unattached. So she drives to her parents in Maryland from North Carolina to tell them that she's leaving her husband and they are not into it. Her parents tell her that she is selfish and impulsive, that this isn't what God wants. They really like Mike. They don't see any problem with him. They just think that she's very impetuous. And at this point, Mike is realizing something's going on. I don't think at this point he was aware of the affair, but he might have been. And so he sends her some flowers at her parents' house to try to woo her back. And when they arrive, her mother's really excited. She's like, oh, your husband sent you flowers. Oh my gosh, this means he wants to get back together. Everything's going to be fine. And she gets incensed. She's like, takes them and she's like, get them out of the house. And her mom's like... Well if you don't want them I'll just put them in my room and she like flips out and like thrashes the flowers and throws them out in a dumpster and her mom's like why are you throwing away perfectly good flowers because her mom's like a child of the depression so she's like what are you doing and then she complains to her lover that her Stupid husband sent her flowers and he didn't. So the next day more flowers arrive from her lover this time and she parades them through the house and puts them on her bedside and tells her mom that they're from the man she really loves. Wow. So she is just rubbing it in her parents' face that she's having this affair.
0: I know. I mean, when you said that she goes to Marilyn and sees him and tells him about the affair, I'm like, why are you doing that? You already don't have a good relationship with your parents. Like, what do you expect them to
1: tell you? She's very impulsive. She's very immature. And she stays this way her whole life. Like, she whatever happened to her in her, like, childhood and teenage years definitely seems like it stuck her in this, like, teenage girl mentality. Yeah. I mean, that's such a teenage girl thing to do. Mhm and and you'll see like throughout the story there's just so many times that she just like says something or does something that you're like unnecessary mean or dramatic you know weird. Yeah. So she ends up going back to North Carolina and she's pretty sure at this point that she's going to leave Mike and be with her lover Craig. But when she gets to Colorado apparently Mike has found out about the affair. Some of the people in the church know and it's because Sharon has been very open like she is going out with this guy like she is friendly with his sister. So like it's a kind of like slightly guarded secret but not really. And so finally he, he finds out about it through some of the other people at the church and the church suggests that they move because it is distracting and scandalous that the minister's wife is having this affair so he is incensed and he says apparently to her we're being kicked out because you're a little slut Sharon. Oh my <laughs> god that is not very ministry. No, it's not a very nice thing to say. I mean, she's not behaving well but dear lord, she's your wife. So, yeah. So I don't think he does a lot of soul searching about exactly like how they got into this predicament, you know, he's just really angry with her. So the congregation basically kicks them out. But fortunately, the, the church moves them to Colorado. And at this point, Sharon goes to her lover and is like, hey, they're kicking us out. I don't really have any choice. Like she doesn't have any independent money of her own. She has two young children. And she basically has to be like, will you, are you going to marry me? Are you going to like sack up and I'm going to stay with you or what's going to go on? He's like, yeah, I don't know. It was fun. You should probably be with your husband. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, this is hard. Mm, Bye.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bye crazy.
1: Bye crazy. See ya. Sex was great. Thanks. So yeah, so she's basically stuck. And also, of course, you can't like become independent because her parents won't take her back. Like yeah. if she was like, hey, I want to get a divorce. I'm going to move in with the girls until I get on my feet. They'd be like, no, you're staying with your husband. And the
0: way she had it in Cleveland where she had her own job for her own fun things was like
1: a good move. But then she had the affair with the boss. So it's like –
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. And the boss like after the whole scandal and everything, he's like, yeah, I don't want you working here anymore, yeah. especially if your husband's going to come try to attack me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, she's basically shit out of luck at this point. There's no one to run to, and she has no way to support herself. So summer of 1976, the Fullers pack up and move to La Junta slash Rocky Ford, Colorado. There's like two little towns that are like seven miles apart. They each have Seventh-day Adventist churches, and he'll be preaching at both of them. So right before they left, they receive a letter from the elders at the churches that Mike will be ministering at. And one of the elders is optometrist Perry Nelson, and Sharon said she felt it in connection to something about Perry. She said, quote, "...there was something about that letter, about Perry's name, that was like a magnet to me. I wondered what this man was like." Which means, uh uh-oh, Perry, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Life was not improving in La Junta. Their builders had gone out of business, leaving their house half finished and completely inhospitable. They had to move into a motel where both daughters got awful cases of diarrhea. And Sharon was stuck all day in the Fleabag Motel with them because they only had one car and Mike was trying to chase down the builders, set up the church, and find a new place for the family to stay. So she's miserable. She's already just had this humiliating experience in North Carolina, and now she's, like, stuck in a shitty motel room with literally shitty butt kids. Yeah, that's does not sound <laughs> ideal. No. So she's completely miserable. So she finally gets a chance to go out when Perry Nelson, one of the church's elders, and his wife Julie invite the Fuller family over to dinner to welcome them to the town and congregation. So Perry is a tall, trim, attractive, and charismatic doctor. He's 6'3 and a lean 180 pounds. He has brown, like brownish salt and pepper hair and like a bushy like 70s beard. He's really cute. He kind of looks like, um, like an older 70s version of Tom Schwartz from Vanderpump Rules. Oh, no way. Yeah, he's got that like kind of like sweet, innocent look to him. You know, with like the brown hair and brown eyes, like a little puppy dog-ish. Yeah. And at 43, he certainly seems to have it all. He has an adoring wife, three nearly grown daughters. They're all like in their older teens at this point. I think they're ranging from like 13 to 18 or 19. Crazy. Three daughters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. I think we're going to stop at two. (laughs) Uh, A beautiful home, two optometry offices in Rocky Ford and Trinidad. He has a motor home, which were super big in the 70s, and even an airplane. So he's also a pilot. Yeah. So he has a lot of stuff and a lot of – he was also extremely well-respected in the church and the larger community. But behind closed doors, he is not the most loyal guy. So he is the type, I wrote douche canoe. He's the type of douche canoe who blames his infidelity on his wife's coldness. Oh. You know, he's like one of those guys who's like, oh, my wife doesn't pay attention to me and she's so f- frigid and I just need affection. And it's like, well, maybe she'd be a lot nicer to you if you weren't a habitual philanderer. <laughs> yeah. So he's,
0: he is Schwartz. He is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't just look like him.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he is a, a naughty boy. And by the time the Fullers are about to arrive in Colorado, he and Julie are recovering from the fallout of a four-year affair he had with another local woman. Yeah. So Julie is a typical stand-by-your-man type of gal. Um, She helps him in his office. Office. she works as a bookkeeper for another doctor, and she raises his three daughters without complaint. By the time the Fullers roll into town for their own fresh start, the Nelsons are trying to revive their marriage as well. Spoiler alert, this doesn't work out very well for either couple.
0: I figured when her second last name was Nelson.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of gave it away. So, immediately Sharon and Perry, these two cheaters, oh, hit it off. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Like finds like over here. Like a Uh, mark to the flame. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The thing is, is that Perry was like this naughty, cheating boy, but I feel like he did not know what he had coming when he found Sharon. Yep. So another church elder, Carl Wheeler, and his wife Blanche are at the same meet and greet dinner, and they both recall feeling distinctly odd about the new minister's wife. I don't know why. I just felt uncomfortable around her, Blanche said. Carl said, she's out looking. Blanche was confused. Looking? And he said, you and I I mean... For a man. <laughs> so, like right away, she was just putting that out there. Yeah. So the flirtation begins almost immediately in full force in an area where most women are jeans and boots gals. I mean, we're talking about like rural Colorado, yeah. just like mountain area. Or at most, that kind of like loose prairie dress style look that was popular in the late seventies. And it you know? is
0: popular again now.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like at most, that's what women were wearing. They're either wearing like cowboy boots and jeans, or they were wearing these like loose, loose flowy, hippie prairie dresses. And she still wears like extremely form-fitting clothes, like tiny short shorts. And the way she just like walks and acts, like she has a very Marilyn Monroe vibe, like with the hippie walk and the breathy talk. And apparently people said that like when she would talk to men especially, she would like Bite her lips and like wet them and stuff and she had like this very full mouth so it was very distracting and
0: what's her age Um, right now
1: she's 30 okay so she's still young i mean 30 is still young and she's working it and she's also
0: been cooped up in a motel with her pooping kids so it's like (laughs) girl gets out she wants to go out
1: Yeah. And she gets out. So Perry invites the new minister and his wife on a camping trip to Taos pretty soon after they roll into town. And they end up like all going in the motorhome and like camping out together. And so one day they're supposed to go hiking and Julie stays behind at at the motorhome and Mike and Perry and Sharon go up with the kids. But Some of the kids get tired on the path and they're complaining. And like, usually, you know, the mom would be like, okay, well, you guys, I'll go back with you. But like Sharon just ignores them. And so finally, (laughs) finally the minister's like, um, I guess if you're tired, I could go back with you. And basically, Sharon and Perry are like, No, we're not tired. We're going to keep going. And so, like, all of the kids go back with the minister and just leave Sharon and Perry on the trail because they're making it really awkward.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. So they get alone together. And apparently, Sharon asks Perry what he's heard about her. And he's like, nothing. Like you're the new minister's wife. Like that's all I know about you. And she's like, oh, okay. I was just wondering if you heard I was the minister's wife who'd hop into bed with anyone. And she just puts it all out there like that. And he's like, oh, no. But it obviously puts an idea in his head, you know. So I think at this point for her, A, she is so sick of her husband. She's been sick of her husband since before she married him. B, I think that she wants more money. And she sees this doctor who has all these things and this nice house. And she's like, level up. Level up, baby. And he's like so clearly into her. He's like very much vibing her. So she knows it's like hers for the taste. And later on, she actually tells a mutual friend that as the minister's wife, she has access to all the financial records of the church. In Seventh-day Adventists, tithe, which means they give 10% of their income to the church. So by being able to see all the records and know how much 10% of what they're making is, she knows exactly how much money he makes. So as somebody who's handsome, he's still relatively young at 43, and she knows that he's one of the top earners that goes to their church, she's like, bing, 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 we have a winner here. Check pot. So, yeah, exactly. So things progress when Perry offers Sharon a part-time secretarial job at his Trinidad office. Now, his longtime office manager, Barbara Ruschetti, knows something is up right away and just can't stand Sharon. So he's like, first of all, raving about her. Like, Sharon's going to start. You're going to love her. She's amazing. And he's just being a really effusive and like way too into this. And she's like, okay, okay. She knows he's a bad boy and she knows that like he has been caught cheating before and she usually looks the other way about it because he's otherwise a really really good boss he's a great community man she talks about how he gives lots of charity he'd like give people the the shirt off his back like her daughter for christmas really wanted an electric typewriter which i guess was expensive back then and he got her one and he just she's a really just doesn't respect his wife (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately. I guess I guess back in the 70s, you could really like be like, you know, other than that cheating on his wife constantly, he's a really good guy. Yeah. So this is where Barb begins to lose respect for him though because he is like with Sharon. The first day Sharon comes in, she's supposed to train Sharon. Instead, they like go into his office and she doesn't come out all morning. Oh and then, my God. Yeah. Like she does not – she doesn't even talk to Sharon And then when they come out, they're like, okay, we're going to lunch. And actually, um, Barb, can you cancel the rest of my day? And you, you know, you take off too. You have a nice afternoon. And she's shocked. He has never canceled appointments with patients ever before and especially not same day and now he is behaving so poorly and like she talks about how he used to be such a stickler for time like he would like dock her pay if she was like 10 minutes late and now he's just blowing off an afternoon.
0: Yeah, those claws are in deep already.
1: Mm -hmm. So Barb is like just over it and when she does get to know Sharon there's just nothing likable about her. Like Sharon's entitled. She doesn't try to like learn anything. She just aggressively paws at the doctor and is just flagrant in like trying to get his attention and rub up against him. So Barb is like a classic, like old school Italian widow who's like, "Mm, mm, mm, absolutely (laughs) not about this girl. Oh, Barb. Oh, Barb. So she actually gives... Oh, this actually – I always forget. I do my my sources like in the middle of the story when I I kind of like it though
0: because it shows that you genuinely paid attention to your sources. <laughs> yes.
1: Exactly. So my main st- source for this story is a book called Bitch on Wheels by G- Greg Olson, which is hilarious. The book is – really bizarre. It's a great story about Sharon, but there's other parts of the book that I'm like really confused by. Like there's no um, page numbers on any of the... (laughs) pages and and there's just a whole bunch it's a weird book but it had a great story so thank you greg olson um and also you can find this story on evil stepmothers fatal vows and or deadly women all of those are id shows that they feature this lovely tale on Sharon.
0: wow they really covered it
1: they really covered i saw two out of three it's really funny and like One of them, they changed all the names of like the supporting characters. And then in another, they had a bunch of the dates wrong. So I don't know if all of those ID shows are exactly factually correct. So we're going to stick with what Greg Olson dug up in his full length book. Perfect. Yes. So actually, Barb is the one that coined the term for the book title because she says, quote, she's a bitch on wheels. She's not nice. You know what I mean? Not nice. Wow. I mean, that's that's a title right there. That's the title, Bitch on Wheels. (laughs) So it's been like barely a week or two after Sharon starts working for Perry that they consummate their budding relationship. This went fast. So he calls because they both live in Rocky Ford. And so they go down to the Trinidad office, which is in another area, to go to work together. And so he tells her that he's going to drive the motorhome down because he's going to pick, like, refill the water tanks in Trinidad. So he's like, why don't you come down with me In the motorhome and then I'll drop you off later after we're done with work. And so uh, they go to work and at work, Barbara calls that day as the two spent the morning brushing up against each other like teenagers in lust is what Barb says later. (laughs) And then Sharon later told a friend, I just knew it was going to happen. There wasn't any other way. By the time we left the office in Trinidad that afternoon, there was no mistaking in either his mind or my mind what was going to happen in the motorhome. So the two leave Barb to close down the office, and they end up pulling off at a rest stop about halfway back to Rocky Ford, and they do the dirty deed for the first time in the motorhome at a dirty 70s rest stop in Colorado. I'm
0: actually shocked it took that long.
1: I know, right? I think this was like at least a month after they met. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So soon they're exchanging love notes at work. And at this point, Perry wasn't even trying to hide it from Barb. He showed her a pile of notes that Sharon had written him and said, look what my doll left me today. So Barb warned him. She was like, oh, doc, please let this go. It's going to ruin your life. And he just told her she didn't understand. He couldn't live without her. And he tells Barb that he's going to marry Sharon. Oh, my God hmm So it's only been like a couple months, I think, that they've known each other at this point. And they're getting very flagrant. So at this point, the congregation was getting nervous and agitated by the affair because everyone was picking up on it. And normally they would go to the minister about anything about like sinning or personal issues between people at the church, but it's his wife that they want to talk about. So finally, some of the church people elect to have Elder Carl Wheeler and his wife say something because they're like the most well-respected at this church. And when approached, Mike seems offended and rebuffs them. But he doesn't seem surprised. He's just like, what are you talking about? Of course my wife wouldn't do that. But they like both notice later. They're like, but he did not seem shocked. He didn't have a normal response. So he's angry and humiliated and he confronts Sharon about the rumors and she denies them completely. She calls the reports the work of conniving liars, people jealous of her and her friendship with an important community leader. Mm -hmm. So she's like, they're just jealous. I have a great relationship with Perry. Mm Mm-hmm. So great relationship sucking his dick. (laughs) That's one way to build an everlasting friendship. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So they had moved there in June or July of 1976 and now – at the end of September, September 27th, 1976, Julie Nelson returns home. It was a – its kind of like a Tupperware party, but it was for face cream. It was like one of those parties where women get together and like sell something. Yeah. And so she returns home from this face cream party to find Reverend Mike at her door. And he's disheveled and distraught. And he tells Julie that Sharon has left him for her husband. And so he'd been driving around looking for them and he didn't know where else to go. And he's just in such a bad mental state. He admits all – about her multiple affairs in Ohio and North Carolina, and he even tells Julie that Rochelle isn't biologically his. Oh, shit. He's going yeah, in. Yeah, so he's he's unloading on Julie. So Julie's, like, shocked at all of this and the timing, but of course not surprised that her husband is once again cheating. Yeah. So she calls Barb to see, like, when, like, they left the office, and <laughs> Barb reports that – how could he do this with three daughters as well? Oh, it's insane what people do. And also, Sharon's running around with a seven-year-old and a two-year-old. I think Gross. at this point, yeah. Like my my daughter is going to be two in November first, and like it sounds exhausting to me trying to like have an can affair. You- <laughs> it's just oh. Like, oh my god! <laughs> no, I can hardly do my own laundry, let alone keep up a sexy <laughs> affair. <laughs>
0: Major, major credit. I like
1: cannot. The thought of that
0: is like nauseating.
1: It's exhausting. Really exhausting. So at this point, they call Barb. Barb reports that Perry and Sharon left the office together at 5 p.m. It's 10.30 now and they are nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. At 11 p.m., Perry finally calls Julie to tell her it's over. He's in love with Sharon and he's going to marry her. And so Julie is just like Y'all are stupid. You're all both cheaters and she's like, "How can you trust each other with your histories?" Like, of course that you cheated on your spouses, you're she's going to cheat on you or vice versa. And he's like, "No, you just don't understand it. This is true love."
0: Uh-huh.
1: Mhm. True, true love
0: that ends up in murder. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Julia just, I think, done at this point. Which She's is like, nice to okay. hear. I think it's probably just center over the le- edge. Like this husband that you have been standing by for so long through multiple affairs is like, you don't understand it. It's true love. <laughs> you're like, oh my God, you're an idiot. I can't even believe I married <laughs> Child, you. Child, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what – it's like the people, all the people in this, especially Sharon, are just so immature, you know? And selfish. So the lovers call in the next day to cancel their appointments. So they're supposed to be at work. Um, The Trinidad office was open on Tuesday, Thursday. So Perry was in Rocky Ford Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then he was in Trinidad on Tuesday and Thursday. And so Barb was already in the office on Tuesday when they called to cancel The full day of work. And so she cancels it. She doesn't know what's going on. And then Julie and Mike show up at the office because they still like they never came home. So they don't know where their spouses are. It's audacious as fuck. Yeah. And so Barb reports, like, she was interviewed for this book, and she's like, holy shit, okay, something's going down. And she said that her heart was breaking for the spouses because they had been so flagrant and terrible, and then they just, like, ran off together. And they've got the kids. And so, mm-hmm. so apparently, also, Denise was still with Mike, but Rochelle, the older daughter, was with Sharon. So what Sharon says later happens is Wait, that they – like while – Well, she- you'll see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so this is what they say happens. So Sharon says that Mike and Julie drove around Trinidad looking for them. And then they saw that they were at a motel because they saw Perry's car and that they get the sheriff to force them to open the door. And when they find Sharon and Perry in bed together, Julie says, we're getting a divorce. I'm going to nail you to the wall. So that's Sharon's story. Yeah, And I remember reading this and I was like – That seems really crazy that a sheriff would break down the door or be like, go in when it's all adults involved, you know? It it seemed weird to me. And then I realized because according to Julie, what happened was that they were there to get Rochelle because her mother had taken the seven-year-old with her on this love nest and had taken her overnight. So the father legally, Mike is the father of Rochelle, even of if course. he's not biologically. Yeah. So of course, a sheriff would get involved if there's a minor child in a hotel room, you know. Is she in the room with them? Yes. Okay. That's so disgusting. It's disgusting. So the seven-year-old was stuck at her mother's love nest in a seedy motel. That is so fucked up. Yes. And so basically Mike gets a restraining, he gets full custody and a restraining order against Sharon and Perry because the seven-year-old says they slept together in front of her. But we do not I don't know if that means like she was just being literal, like she's a seven-year-old and she was like, they slept in the same bed together. Like they literally slept. Yeah, but or that's the thing.
0: If, if you're seven, you don't necessarily know what's going on and there's two people under the covers. Yes. It's,
1: So, so, so bad. So, of course, the courts award him temporary full custody based on this event. And at this point, Julie and Perry also do a temporary separation. So now, like, neither of them, neither of the cheaters have their kids. So they're just kind of, like, free to carry on their affair.
0: I mean, they're probably
1: having the time of their lives. Yeah. So they have a great couple weeks. They're just, like, being flagrant. They're going out to restaurants. They're doing whatever they want. Except... Of course, the community starts shunning Sharon really hard and Perry starts losing patience. Good. It's a religious community. Like you can't like cheat and steal the minister's wife away and have everyone still like think you're the best guy in the world. No. They can go to another optometrist. Yeah, exactly. And that's what they do. So he starts losing patience. Sharon is – really pissed because she says everyone's like looking at julie and mike like they're saints and they're looking at like her and perry like they're terrible people well i i mean i don't know how else they're supposed to look at it so sharon hates how badly she's being treated and of course people are upset with perry but she's definitely considered like the scarlet letter of course who wrecked two marriages you know it's always going to be worse for the woman no matter what it takes two to tango but it's like one hundred percent worse for the woman, one hundred percent of the time, yeah, yeah, so she's getting like the majority of this hatred and this gossip, so because of all this, I think she she didn't like her boring life, but at least she was like kind of well regarded mm-hmm. and you know she had some social standing as the minister's wife, and now she's just getting treated like dirt by everyone. And she's kind of like, hmm, I don't know if this was a good decision. So she starts going through a crisis. And after speaking with a family friend who's a counselor, decides to leave Perry to go to an Adventist counseling program in Texas. And this is like to figure out what she really wants, but also it's a Christian counseling program. So it's kind of like to get herself right with God, Mm -hmm. you know? So Perry's a mess. He knows that a Christian counselor is going to encourage her to get back together with her family. And is that still an option for her? Like, would Mike have her back? uh, Well, at this point, she doesn't know. She is going to figure out – like, I think at this point she wants – some absolvation. Mm -hmm. She wants to be absolved of this sin and she wants to either like be absolved of it and go back to Mike if that's still an option or be absolved of it and have her find out that God approves of her going forward with Perry. Yes, say
0: like 12 Hail Marys and
1: you're good to go. Exactly. She just wants to figure out the direction. And the counselor encourages her to call Mike and find out like what he's thinking and what the possibilities are. And Mike actually wants her back. Which is shocking to me because they've been through so much and it seems like such a nightmare marriage. Yeah, but,
0: but probably probably I don't know his if- reputation thing, you know. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. So So yeah, so Mike flies to Texas and the two decide to repair their broken family. They have an emotional reunion and they pledge to commit to each other again. But there's still so much bitterness. I mean, Mike is still frustrated with the last of a long string of affairs. And Sharon claims it's her husband's shortcomings that have pushed her repeatedly into other men's arms. So she's, like, blaming him for the affair. He's like, are you kidding me? And the first night that they're at a Texas hotel together, it just gets worse because Mike is, like, unpacking and he tells her he brought her some things from home. And he pulls out, like, a see-through nighty, And she's like... Oh, gross. And she starts yelling at him that he didn't come there to fix their relationship, but instead he just wants to get a piece of tail if he brought her, like, this sexy lingerie. Oh, my God. And then apparently it sets off this, like, angry reaction in her, and she just yells at him all night about everything from their sex life to how he dressed and why everything's all his fault. And she says later, like to his credit, he just like sat there and took it. So she knew then that he was serious about getting back together because he like didn't give up and he didn't walk away. She's unhinged. Oh, she's a nightmare human being. She really is like a teenager that never grows up yeah, and is what, just terrible. What is that regression? I think
0: when you um, when there's something that traumatized you in a, your teenage years and then yeah. you kind
1: of are stuck there. You're stuck there. Yeah. Yeah, There's a word for it because it's not regression because she doesn't go back. She just never grew up. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. She's she's stuck, man. She is trouble. So despite all of this, Mike and Sharon complete four more days of intensive couples counseling and they end up moving together to Arvada, Colorado. So yet once again, because of Sharon's affairs, they have to move to a new town and a new church. Man.
0: I wonder how the kids are doing during all that.
1: Oh, I mean, the little one probably didn't know what was going on, but the older one, who's seven, is definitely knows what's going on at this point. Ugh. It's also, it's crazy. It's kind of like, you know, in the Catholic Church when their uh, priests would be accused of pedophilia, they'd just move them to other churches. Yep. This is like not as bad as that, but because of her sexual behavior, they have to keep moving It's him. the
0: same pattern, yeah.
1: Exactly. And so Arvada is a suburb of Denver. It's less than three hours away from Rocky Ford. So it's not altogether that far from where they were. And this is actually the largest church that Mike has ever ministered at. They have 2,000 members. But out of this 2,000 members, because it's not so far from their last church, almost all of the congregation know what happened yeah. with Sharon. So she does not start off on a good foot. She says that Mike had like dropped the kids off to be babysat by two church ladies while he went to do like the marriage counseling. And when he came back, she said that those women, those old biddies were looking at her with the stain and she knew that they knew what was going on.
0: Yeah, they didn't go far enough away.
1: Mm -mm. And so she's like hating her life all over again because like she did not get the well-respected, you know, church wife thing back. They didn't go far enough away. So when she's up at that pew listening to her husband, she can look back and she can see everybody giving her dirty looks. They're whispering about her. Mm -hmm. And she's like right back where she was before. And so she's like, okay, I did not go through all of this just to be treated like this again. So she gets a job at a hospital and she's trying to, like, keep herself busy and out of trouble. And she honors her commitment to Mike by not talking to Perry, but she does this by calling Barb at the Trinidad offices and, like, passing messages to him. So she's not technically talking to Perry, but she's, like, you know, telling Barb to tell him she's thinking of him. And I stuff see like right
0: that. through you, Sharon.
1: Exactly. So she's miserable. She starts drinking like heavily at this point. She's drinking screwdrivers like all day when she's not working and she drinks a six pack of beer every single night whoa is she putting on the lbs i don't know you'd think she is that's a lot of
0: booze a lot
1: those beers
0: at night cannot be good for the waistline
1: god that's
0: that's 42 beers a week that's disgusting (laughs) so
1: gross you know what though she could hang with taunch and mandy from that last episode
0: (laughs) but i don't think that's anything to brag about
1: (laughs) so Perry's still madly in love with Sharon, and eventually he sends her a little silver music box that plays Somewhere, My Love. And she takes that as a sign to quit her job and leave Mike for good. So she does it. She like is out, man. She goes back to Perry. By December 1976, she has lost custody of her daughters. She's back in Rocky Ford with Perry full time. And Julie and her daughters moved to California on January 2nd, 1977, finally leaving Perry after years of infidelity. Good for that. Thank goodness. Yeah. Run, Julie, run. Yeah. So Julie said that when she was driving away, she started crying and then started. Started laughing. Like she could not stop laughing. Like she was like, Why am I crying? Like this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. She's like, Thank God. And her daughters were in the car and they're like, Mom, are you okay? And she's like, I'm the best I've ever been. (laughs) oh my god so life only gets like better for julie after this for the most part there's some little sticky things that happen with her daughter that i'm sure she wasn't happy about which i'll tell you about but like for the most part she gets life gets better for julie so sharon returns to work at perry's trinidad office much to barb's chagrin of course and she's like (laughs) alienating more patients and losing them by the truckload like she has no customer service they talked about how they had this one really wealthy family that was a big client. And the son brought in his fiance and uh, she was trying on hard contacts. And the girl was like freaked out about putting glass in her eye. you know. And instead of like helping her, uh, Sharon was like, you're just a big spoiled baby and was like yelling at the girl. And so the son was like, how dare you talk to my fiance that way? And she was like, I don't care who you are. Like Sharon was like, fuck you, whatever. And so he got up and he's like, my entire family will no longer be coming here. And they had like a giant extended family and the entire family stopped going. Yikes. Yeah. So she is not good for business. So when both of their divorces are finalized, Sharon and Perry marry on July 1st, 1977. And it seems also at the time they married, they were most likely already like a couple weeks pregnant when they got married. Really? Really? Uh-huh. So sh- they got married July 1st and a little baby boy is delivered the first week of March. So they probably overlapped by a couple weeks. Um so they have a little baby boy named Danny and this makes Sharon brag about how Julie could only give him three daughters and she gave him a son on the first try. So fucked up. Isn't that terrible? He's like a horrible person. She is l- like the worst. It gets there's so many things In this story that like you think she's got to rock bottom and then I'll tell you something and your jaw will drop. She is so terrible. She's like, we've covered some bad people. She might be the worst.
0: So far, yeah.
1: Yeah. So they have insane money troubles. Even though Perry was making a ton of money with two practices, he's losing clients left and right. He has to pay alimony, child support. Of course, Sharon wants a new house. She wants a new car. They have a new baby. Um, Sharon wants... Furs she wants designer clothes, she wants jewelry. She wants everything she feels like she's been going without as just a preacher's wife, and she thinks he's this rich doctor who should give her the life that she's afforded, and so she is supposed to be paying vendors like all the the people that supply contact lenses and glasses and that sort of thing. and she starts just not paying the bills and using the money for herself, so she is just screwing his company over left and right, oh my God. Yeah, it's it gets really bad. So Lori Perry's youngest daughter, she hates California. She's like a very typical teenager. She didn't want to move. She didn't like California. And she's like blaming her mom. She's full on being a teenager. Like if you weren't so boring, if you were sexier and more fun, like Sharon, dad would have never left you. Like she's blaming her mom for everything, which I think kids do because they use the responsible parent who will always love them as like the punching bag, you know? Yep. So at this point, I think Julie is just like so fed up with it. And she's been through so much in her life that she's like, fine, you want to go live with your dad because him and Sharon are so cool? You go live with your dad because I don't need to deal with this anymore. So they basically make a deal that she can come, Lori can come live with Sharon and Perry for like the summers if she goes to this Seventh Day Adventist boarding school for the school year. Okay. And- this wasn't something uncommon. I guess her older sisters had gone to the same boarding school. So this wasn't like a punishment or anything. No. This was something that their family did. And so when she comes home, she's going to be starting in the spring semester, but she comes home like for Christmas and New Year's before she starts school. And she just loves Sharon. Like apparently Sharon and her get along. Sharon treats her like a girlfriend, not like a mom, you know. So she thinks Sharon's really glamorous uh, and fun. The world yep, so when Perry's out, or when he's doing like churchy things, or when he's out with friends, Sharon starts giving Lori alcohol. Of course, she does. Yeah, and she's like, "This is our little secret. Like, we're we're girlfriends. We're gonna have fun." She like lets Lori have boys over. Yeah, I'm she not like your mom. Lori. like Yeah, I'm a fun stepmom. So she even tells her, like, "Ooh, if you like." you know, empty shampoo bottles you can pour booze in and sneak it into the school. Oh, my God. hmm So she kind of, like, encourages this behavior and she gets, like, Lori a little hooked on drinking. And so she does bring some booze back and then she, like, gets into trouble at school for partying and having alcohol. Oh, man. And this happens several times. And so she's very close to getting expelled because they are Seventh-day Adventists. Like, even – Adults aren't supposed to drink exactly. in this religion. Exactly. So it's really bad. She's also like cavorting with boys and all this stuff. So she's about to get expelled and the school calls Perry to like come down to the school and try to straighten her out. And so they go to visit and at Sharon's direction, Perry takes off his belt and in the dorm room puts 17-year-old Lori over his lap and spanks her with the belt.
0: Oh, my God. Well, it's honestly, though, on Perry for not, like, you know – being so pussy with bitch. that.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And so apparently it's so violent that like of course Lori's crying and she's like thrashing and she breaks some blood vessels in her nose and she gets like this terrible nosebleed all over her sheets while this is happening. Oh so like God. it's very violent and apparently Sharon and is holding baby Danny and just like watching and smirking. So like Lori's completely humiliated. She's unbelievably sad. Also, all of the drinking and the fun having was obviously all of Sharon's idea. And now she's just sitting there watching her get punished.
0: Yeah, is and this she didn't like a manipulative tact on Sharon's behalf, or like yes, okay,
1: one hundred percent. Sharon was trying to drive a wedge between Perry and his daughter. He wa- she wanted to piss Perry off enough that he wouldn't pay for his daughter's schooling.
0: She wanted to oh cut off God.
1: finances and emotional ties. So she really planted all of this stuff. So afterwards, they go to a movie because that's what Sharon wanted to do. So after this girl is just slapped around by her father when she's a grown 17-year-old girl, she has to, like, pull up her pants and go to see Caddyshack with them. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. So they go to see Caddyshack, and Lori is just numb, and she's like, like – Sharon's like laughing along with the movie and being like, isn't this fun? Isn't this a fun family thing? And she's like literally looking at this woman like, oh my God, you're the devil. Like you are two different people. So while they're gone, Lori's roommate notices the blood all over Lori's bed and knows that her father was in here and something was happening. So she alerts the dean. And so Lori informs them that it was discipline- That happened, so the dean is perplexed at how to handle it. Like he basically doesn't Uh, know, like what to do with this troubled girl who obviously has a troubled relationship with her father and might, like, he can't send her home because she might be going home to an abusive situation. Yeah, so he doesn't talk to Perry anymore, and he sends, um, he basically expels Lori and sends her directly home to her mother. Okay, which. I think is a good call at this point. Did he tell Julie? Yeah, he um Julie knows that something happened, but Lori doesn't really want to talk about it. So Julie's just like, you know what? You're staying away from your father. And Lori's like, Fine with me, I never want to talk to him again, you know? Wow. Yep. And it gets even worse because years, years later, when Lori's in the area, she reconnects with the dean and one of her teachers. And she had been this like real wild child, obviously. Now she like settled down. She married really young. Now she's a mother and she's like a beacon in her community. Like Lori does really well for herself. And so she gets together with the dean and he's like, I'm so sorry you had such a terrible, like, home life and I'm so glad you, like, turned out so well. It must have been so hard with your stepmother undermining you and trying to, like, hurt you all the time. And she's like, what are you talking about? And Sharon, when she would, like, send her back to school with booze, would then call the dean and be like, search my my daughter's room because I think she has snuck alcohol back into the dorms. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. This so she snake. was setting her up. Uh-huh. So yeah, Lori doesn't find out that till like years later. And she's like, I don't even know why I'm shocked. But it's like so disappointing to find out even years later of like course. how of course. evil she was. So Sharon forces Perry to cut off the older girl's college while also demanding that he buy expensive gifts for her own girls who she hasn't seen. So basically she's she tells him that he can't pay for her college, their college anymore and that she's not going to pay for any of Lori's schooling at all. And it's like so embarrassing. He doesn't even communicate this to the girls. Like the older girls like go to sign up for their next college courses and they're like sorry there's no money for you yeah sorry. and unbelievable and me yeah uh, it's unbelievable and basically she's like i don't think i should pay for your former mistakes basically calling his children mistakes you Mm-hmm. She's so she's just like his,
0: manipulating. Like
1: claws are in deep. Yeah, and he's not fighting back. He's not doing anything to save his relationship God, with his three eldest so old, children. Pussy mm-hmm. So, in 1980, the couple have another child, a little girl named Misty, and they build a custom dream home on a remote ridge in Weston, Colorado. They build this beautiful home that they call the Roundhouse, and it's like crazy huge. They have like 120-foot decks that look over the beautiful Rocky Mountains. It's actually really, really stunning, which of course Sharon demanded all of this. The country neighbors befriend the Nelsons. It's like this couple that runs a mill like down at the bottom of the hill where they live. And they really like Perry. They think that he's nice. He gets along with everyone. But they also find Sharon very suggestive and over the top. And I guess at one point they go over for dinner and Danny, who's three, like comes out with a framed photo and he gives it to the woman and he's like, This is when I was born. And it's a framed photo of Sharon's vagina. And you're literally that. Danny coming out of it.
0: Like, who frames that photo? And and shows it to the little boy.
1: I know. He's like, This is me getting born. Oh my and so God. the woman was like Oh, that's nice, honey. Why don't you put that back somewhere <laughs> private?
0: <laughs> I was going to say, did he start a uh, practice in this town? Like, So this,
1: this place was close enough to the Trinidad office. Okay, got it. So he's so still making some, money there. Yes. At some point, I think he sells the Rocky ford um office but he still has the trinidad office and then another time they're having a dinner party and she tells like these bizarre stories like she's like i went to the doctor the other day and when i took off my robe he was like why sharon you don't have a single tan line and i was like no doctor i sunbathe in the nude and he goes hmm just beautiful oh my like God. She's telling this to guests and, like, we don't know if that's true. If it's true, that's a very inappropriate way for a doctor to behave. But, like, also why would you tell that to guests? Attention, immaturity, selfishness. Yeah. Crazy. She also says, like, makes comments about other men that they're meeting. Like, it's a very mountainy – community, all the men are very, like, rugged, and she keeps saying things about, like, other neighbors, like, wouldn't kick him out of bed for eating crackers and, like, commenting on their looks or, like, you know, who's packing a big dick and saying weird things like that. She even... reveals, oh this is when she reveals to a female friend that how she like went after Perry which is like when she talks about the money and the tithing and how she knew and she says, I set my sights on him and I got him. So basically this is what one of their friends said about them. I felt like the whole marriage was a show, said a woman who knew all parties in the sordid and tragic Nelson saga. It was like they were trying so hard to portray that they were happy. They were trying to prove to the world that they had done nothing wrong that their love was good and right. It didn't matter about Mike and the kids or Julie and the girls. Their love was higher than that. Sharon was always a big one for appearances. She wanted everything new and perfect in her home, but it was just for looks. Her marriage was the same way. There was no heart to anything she had or did. Totally makes so, sense. So anyway, of course, it doesn't take long for Sharon to start cheating again. In 1981, she strikes up an affair with a man named Buzz Reynolds, a wealthy rancher who is friends with Perry. Like, she knows him from being friends with Perry. Oh, is he married? <sighs> Uh, No, so Buzz is not married. Uh, I like it when she she goes after the single dudes. Yeah, she's not like going – she's not like Joss in the Kenya episode who goes for married people. She's going for anything with a pulse, wallet, and dick. (laughs) The three requirements. So she moves into Buzz's ranch, leaving her kids with Perry, who is deeply in debt at this point and suicidal. So basically at this point, her older two girls are with her ex back in. He moved back to Ohio after Colorado. So they're back in Ohio. And now she's leaving her other two children with Perry and moving in with this new guy. She doesn't give a fuck. No, she's a terrible, terrible... Terrible, terrible person and a terrible mother. And so Perry is just a mess. He owes shit tons of money to the IRS. He hasn't, he hasn't paid like any of his alimony. His Bronco gets repossessed and his businesses are in trouble, which are all due in large part to Sharon. So this is at the point he has to sell the Rocky Ford practice just to get some money. So he's in in deep shit. And at one point around is, Christmas. Is Barb he, just sitting there like yeah, <laughs> like I told you. I told you you dick. She said it. She's like, "Don't make me tell you again."
0: Oh, mm-hmm. just sitting there with a flat mouth.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he invites Sharon to the house for Christmas 1981 in an attempt to spend the holiday with their small children and he really wants to reconcile. Instead, she tells him that she's pregnant with Buzz's baby.
0: Shit, what?
1: Yeah. So this is like the last straw for Perry. He is disgusted with her. Like he's like, you know what? Fine. Go back to Buzz then. I'll raise our kids. Like screw you. Like I can't believe you – I cannot. This is crazy. This is this woman is insane. And also, can you
0: imagine being pregnant five times with different uh, men? No.
1: no, and this is not – like we're talking the 70s and 80s here. We're not talking a time before the pill was available. She has – vi- like she can get birth control. Yeah. Like these are choices she's making. Do do the Seventh-day Adventists believe in birth control? I don't know. But if she can cheat for <laughs> tobacco and drinking and infidelity, I think she could also cheat with using some prophylactics. Yeah. She's just not – there's – screws are
0: not right in there. They're all – Yeah, so
1: Perry is like – he used to be like a maybe sneak a little beer here and there type of guy. Now he's like a full-blown like alcoholic at this point because he is just so depressed. And Buzz, who might be the smartest guy in this whole story, kicks Sharon out when he finds out about the pregnancy. He's like, no, I don't want to have a kid with you and I don't want to marry you. So she's like S.O.L. at this point because Perry won't take her back, but he does pay to rent her a cheap apartment in Rocky Ford. So she's like now out pregnant and living in a crappy apartment. So she has like lost the bet of like what's going on here. So she decides to have an abortion, uh, which is totally fine. Smart yeah, like. We are very pro choice at this podcast. Yes. (laughs) Um, However, her relationship with getting pregnant and abortions is so suspect. I'll read you a um, passage from Bitch on Wheels, and this was from her own sister. I can't get over that. That's the actual title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch on Every Wheels. Every time. <laughs> the worst part is that I accidentally ordered two from Amazon, so I have two copies of Bitch on Wheels. You send one over to me. I really will. We'll both have one on we our We should bookshelf. give one away. <laughs> we should. <laughs> Guys, if you want a copy of Bitch on Wheels, send us an email. The first person to email gets a copy. An
0: autographed Jessie Prey copy. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> So this is from the book. Judy Douglas had always been pro-choice when it came to abortion and a woman's right to take responsibility for her body. Yet, in Judy's estimation, her younger sister's repeated abortions made Sharon the poster girl for forces seeking to restrict the procedure. Sharon had terminated at least five pregnancies that her sister knew about, maybe more during the years when the sisters were estranged. Holy shit. She used to stop by on her way to Denver on her way to get an abortion. It was very casual for Sharon, Judy recalled several years later. At the time of Sharon's pregnancies from her myriad Colorado lovers, Judy knew better than trying to convince her. birth control might be a good idea. Given her history of promiscuity and obvious fertility, Sharon wanted to get pregnant. She had some strange romantic idea about pregnancy and her affairs. I never understood it. I never will. So it seemed like she used – she knew she was fertile. She knew that this was a possibility. And she purposely got pregnant to force situations with these men. It
0: doesn't surprise me at all considering her manipulative track so far, you know. It's the same. It's the same mm-hmm. thing. I just honestly, after five abortions, it, I could imagine that it'd be harder to get pregnant. I mean that girl has to be like fertile myrtle.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, also, this this is some funny <sighs> – thing too. (laughs) So they have in between all of the chapters of this book, they have like quotes from real people. So they have three quotes in here. It's from a friend of Perry's that's a Trinidad chiropractor. The reason Perry stayed with her was purely sexual. Sharon gave everyone the impression she was a real hot number. She's one of those little tarts with a round ass and a large bust that comes around in short shorts that show her crack. But there was something lurking beneath the surface with Sharon. You wanted to be real careful around her. Whoa, Terry Mitchell. This is Terry Mitchell, Trinidad chiropractor. That is a crazy Yelp review there, Terry. That
0: is also like maybe she was right about the doctors in town. I mean, he's a doctor.
1: I know. That's very offensive. No,
0: um, not and okay. Barb, not okay, Terry.
1: No. And Barbara, Barb Rashetti said, Everyone lock up your husbands. Sharon's coming around.
0: Is that Barb the assistant? Barb?
1: That's Barb, the assistant. I love her. <laughs> She's the star of this story. She really is. Yeah. Go, Barb. Um, and then uh, Donna Goodhead, a friend of Dr. Nelson, said she led Perry around by the penis. Oh, what? Like, literally, look at Thanks. these are the quotes in the book. I'm holding it up to the Zoom right now so she can see. <laughs> like, these are put in italics. It's unbelievable. So, at, around this whole time that Sharon's going through this, Perry makes amends with Lori and attends her February 1982 wedding. And he tells her he's so sorry for everything that happened with them and that it's over for good with Sharon and everyone is relieved. But, of course, Sharon has now gotten the abortion. She's tired of living in a flea bag apartment and she's getting jerked around by Buzz, who is like not committing to her. So she uses her son Danny's fourth birthday as a time to reconcile with Perry. Like she basically sweet talks her way back into his life. It works. Perry and Sharon call off the divorce and she moves back in with him.
0: Oh, man. Just
1: getting tugged around by the penis again. He's just getting tugged around by the penis. Also, I have to tell you something really sad. Oh, no. What? In June 1982, Perry has to lay off Barb. He has to lay her off because he's broke. There's no more money even to keep Barb around. Oh, my God. Barb has to be pissed. She's pissed and she gets even more pissed because she's supposed to get unemployment and the unemployment office informs her she cannot because guess he what? He hasn't
0: been paying his taxes.
1: He hasn't been paying. What a douche canoe. Yep. He hasn't paid into the unemployment for over a year and a half. So she gets zero. Oh, that's disgusting.
0: That's disgusting. I mm-hmm. hope Greg Olson mm-hmm. gave her some money for the book.
1: <laughs> me too. I really do. Barb, if you're out there, let it, hit us up. We start a, we'll start a GoFundMe. <laughs> yeah. uh, Barb, the unsung hero of this. 100%. Honey. Yeah. We love Barb. We love you, Barb. So. Around this time is when Sharon meets Gary Adams. He's going to factor in very strongly in the story. He's a sexy, gruff mountain man with crystal blue eyes. He's like a handyman roofer, carpenter, all-around fix-it guy. He kind of looks like – you know in Practical Magic, like the police – no, Okay. <laughs> never mind. Willis does not have one for him. No, no, no. Let's no. Go back it. To- it cause, just because I haven't seen Practical Magic doesn't mean that everyone else hasn't. Well, I don't know his name in Practical Magic, but I know that he's like in Practical Magic with Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman. He's the guy who ends up with Sandra Bullock. He's like the guy she dreams up. He's like this like rugged, handsome uh, police guy. Uh, detective man but anyways he kind of looks like him yeah so she instantly is into him they meet when he comes up to the house because perry had hired him to do some work around the house and she's just immediately attracted to him so she invites him to come to this halloween party that they're having the following week and when he comes up she ends up like grabbing him and dancing with him all night and she's like dirty dancing with him and she suggests that he come for an eye exam in the office on Thursday. Stop. Which is yeah, which is a day that Perry's not gonna be in the office. Oh
0: my God.
1: hmm So he goes down to the office and she's like, Let me take you in the back and like she like turns down the lights and she immediately starts making out with him. Like she goes from zero to jump city.
0: Do you think that he expected it?
1: Uh, no, he was completely thrown off, but he was really excited by it. Like he he like knew she was kind of being suggestive, but he thought she was just going to like be flirty with him. So when she like went full on like sitting on his lap and like making out with him, it was, it was like a welcome surprise. So he was getting hot and bothered and he thought they were going to like have sex right there but then somebody came into the office to pick up their glasses okay okay so so she runs to the front to like give the person the glasses and then she comes back and she's like hey this is pretty dangerous like why don't you go around to this motel that i know of like two blocks away and i'll meet you over there and so he goes and gets the motel room and they start getting it on but he can't get it up he can't get an erection oh no I know. Let's not feel – we don't feel that bad for him. I think that he had at that point not cheated on his wife. So there's probably some emotional component. Oh, I didn't know he was
0: married. I don't feel fucking bad for him. Yes.
1: No, he's married. He's married to a nice woman named Nancy and he has two teenage children. I mean she keeps
0: flip-flopping back and forth between the like single and not single guys. So it's hard to keep up.
1: I'm telling you it doesn't (sighs) matter to her. Like she'll take any guy. (gasps) Yeah, so she actually is really nice about it, and it doesn't stop her from trying. She, like, had set her sights on this guy, and she wanted him. Even though he doesn't have any money, she just thinks he's very, like, rugged and sexy. And by spring of 1983, he's managed to get it up, and they've consummated their (laughs) relationship. So they're, like – they go and – to this like lake in the woods and they like lay down a sleeping bag and have sex there. Oh, uh, how teenage and I of them. guess. <laughs> yeah. And I guess he had like never performed oral sex on a woman before, which makes me sad for his wife. Oh but, my God. Uh, he is quoted in Bitch on Wheels as saying... She tasted so good, he told a friend. I always called it her special sauce. (laughs) She'd get real wet, and it was almost like an addicting drug. Once I had it with her, I just had to have it. Oh, my God like, what, what is Sharon, a Big Mac? Like, what are we talking Special about here? <laughs> sauce.
0: It's disgusting.
1: It's so <laughs> gross. So Sharon is, like, also just obsessed with him. Um, This is also from the the book. He had a body like I'd never seen before on anyone, she said. Once she tried to put into words her deep attraction for the man. Not really muscular, but there wasn't an ounce that he didn't know how to use. For whatever he chose to use it for, I'd never had anyone in my life who'd accepted me so totally and any state, any stage. I could have been working out in the garden with sweat running down my neck, dirt between my toes, and it never detracted. They're just having nasty sex. Is exactly. Basically what's they've got <laughs> that
0: chemical attraction for sure. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so now Sharon starts manipulating Gary and telling him that Perry is abusive towards her and the kids. And she begs him to help her get rid of him. So she is like decided that Perry's gotta go. And he's kind of she, like a dead weight now, huh? Yeah, he, like, doesn't have that much money. Mm-mm. He's worth more to her dead than alive at this you point.
0: You said he's suicidal. So that's yep, like- so
1: he's already, like, not feeling great. So at this point, Sharon has filled out several insurance policies on him. Ooh, we know what that means. We know that's not a good sign. <gasps> and in June 1983, Gary attempts to murder Perry for the first time. Gary does? when. Char- Gary does. Gary's all twisted up with her. He's believing what she's saying when she's saying, I need out of this marriage. He's hurting me and the children. Oh, my God. Yeah. And Gary's not a good guy. So Gary attempts – so when Sharon tells Gary that Perry will be heading out, Gary and a friend wait in Gary's pickup truck for Perry's black VW bug to zip by. When it does, (laughs) they catch up with him. And they both pull over. And so they're like, oh, hey, funny. We, like, met on the road. And they suggest heading to a bar in Denver. So he's like, oh, I was going to go out, like, drinking, too. Like, let's all go out together, basically. So after a few rounds, they decide to go to the seedy strip club that's, like, on the outskirts of Denver. And I do not know twice in this story some someone called Gary's friend. They never identify him comes up, and this is a real good friend. Gary's friend drops drugs designed to knock Perry out in his beer while Gary distracts him. So Perry thinks the beer tastes weird, so he doesn't drink the whole thing. He, like, stops drinking it. Uh Uh-huh. And so he gets, like, a different beer. So then they're like, okay, well, that failed. Let's just get him really, really drunk. So the plan is to, like, ply him with more booze and then when they, like, they're going to, like, pull over on their way back to, like, sleep it off and then they were going to, like, beat him with a tire iron or something. Oh, my God. Yeah, but Gary's now kind of like drunk and a little out of sorts. And he's like, I don't know if this guy is really that bad. I don't know if he like really has been hurting her. I don't know if I want to do this. Also, I'm drunk and it seems like a lot of work to beat somebody to death with a tire and iron right now.
0: All valid evaluations. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
1: So he like – tell his friend is like, oh, my God, are we going to jump this guy? And he's like, nah, let's just let it go. So they all just end up like sleeping it off on the side of the road. And they return the next day home. Oh, Sharon pants. Sharon is so angry and she's shocked. So she had assumed that – you know, a cop would be, like, coming to her door or something and telling her that yeah. her husband was dead. So she was, like, planning her Oscar-winning act of being, like, this shocked wife. And so when he walks in, she is, like, blown away and she is angry.
0: Yeah, he's so like, is- I just had a night out with your husband. We got too drunk. <laughs> I'm hungover now. Nurse me.
1: She's like, Yeah, bastard. Because <laughs> both both her husband and lover are like, oh, we had so much fun last night. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not dead. I kind of love that. Yeah. So Sharon's like really pissed and she starts withholding sex from him until he gets the deed done. So she tells him that he has a business trip in Denver planned in July, which is the next month. So basically she's like, this is now or never. You have to do it then and so Gary tells him that he tells Perry that he has an opportunity to buy some stolen guns there for cheap if Perry wants to give him a ride and Perry's all in Gary tells Perry not to tell his wife Nancy because she would disapprove of the illegal activity so he's like basically setting up an alibi so nobody knows that Gary's going with Perry the only person who knows is Sharon and Gary tells Nancy, his wife, that he's playing poker with some buddies and he'll be out all night.
0: Ugh, so so this many is lies. A, a,
1: so many lies. So from Weston to Denver, it's a four-hour drive. And so the two men talk and this is again when he's like talking about how he like really fucked up his relationship with his eldest daughters and how things have been like hard with Sharon and but he still loves her and he's just trying to mend things, how he's having financial issues and like – I mean, he really opens up his heart to Gary, and Gary's like, hmm, I don't know if this guy is really that bad. I think that Sharon may have duped me, but he also is completely under Sharon's spell, and he's he doesn't want to piss her off again. So he's like, I think I just really have to go through the plan this time. So they stop at a bar in Castle Rock, and they drink a few beers. And Gary excuses himself to use the bathroom and and he actually goes to a payphone and he arranges for a friend to pick him up at midnight at the first tunnel past Golden, Colorado. So he's plotting something. So just before midnight in Golden, Gary tells Perry that he needs to take a leak and he suggests they pull over. And it's right next to Clear Creek River. So it's completely like bucketing rain now. And this is an area of Colorado that has signs that like warn you against flash floods. Okay. They basically have signs that are like if your if your car is caught in a flash flood in this area, like get out of the car and climb up to the mountains because you will be whisked away down the mountains Crazy. in a river. Whoa. Mm-hmm. so it's super dangerous, especially when it's raining. I mean it's like really serious flash flood warnings. So it is pouring rain and he goes out and he pretends to lose his wallet. So he goes back to Perry and he's like, hey, when I was taking a leak, I I must have dropped my wallet somewhere. Um, Can you come help me find it? And so Perry's like, sure, man, whatever. And so they get outside and like, of course, they don't have like flashlights or anything. They don't have phones like we do. So he tells Perry where he thinks he dropped it. And Perry turns around and like is down his head down toward the ground, looking at the bank of the river to see if he can find it. And Gary picks up this 15 to 20 pound boulder Oh my God. and brings it down on Perry's head. So Perry is completely stunned and he sh- like falls to the ground on his hands and knees, but he recovers like he, he doesn't get knocked out. So he's bleeding from the head now. So he's covered with blood and water. He kind of like falls into the river, but he pops like back up and he's like, what the hell? And so... Gary goes after him again with The Rock, but this time they start fighting and Perry pulls him into the river with him. So they're like both in the river fighting now and like wrestling. And what happens Like so, apparently the plan was that Gary was going to knock Perry unconscious with the rock, and he thought based on movies, like you just hit somebody as hard as you can with a rock, and they're out.
0: Which is not what happened. Once again,
1: it is so much harder to kill people than you think. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do do it. Love murder PSA. Just don't kill people. I know it's hard. We've
0: said it before. You're going to look stupid. It is stupid.
1: So you're going to fail. Don't, you're going to fail. It's going to be terrible. And you're going to be, do be wrestling in a river. Yes. So his plan was that he was then going to drown him and then he was going to take his corpse back up to the car. What? Put it in the car. Yep. And then run the car into the river so it looked like he like drove off the road. With like that a huge
0: plan. bash in his head.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so that's the plan. So instead, they're like now fighting in the river and it is like rushing water. I mean, it's a fast current. So they're fighting and Gary starts actually getting scared because Perry's actually taller than him and outweighs him by a little bit. So like he thought he was going to get the jump on Perry, knock him out. But now they're like actually fighting. And at one point, Perry pushes Gary under the water. So Gary's under the water and he's getting freaked out. He is figuratively and literally in over his head at this point. (laughs) I
0: like what you did there.
1: Thank you. And when he surfaces, he manages to break away from Perry, but he's like still sputtering and he gets his head above water. And he watches Perry, still alive, get washed down the river by the current. So Perry just goes bye-bye. Bye-bye. (laughs) Bye-bye. So that's it. So basically – But still alive but still alive. He sees the current sweep Perry down the river and he disappears. So he has no idea whether Perry's alive or not or what happened to him. It's terrifying. So he like jumps out of the river and he runs as far as he can down, but Perry's gone, like gone. He's like down the mountain, gone. So he's like, okay, he could be dead. Like he could be drowned by the river. But when he saw him floating down the river, he was still alive. That is so scary. So scary. So he's out there in the middle of the night. It's like now midnight. He doesn't know what the – fuck he's gonna do and so he decides like i guess i'll just stick with the plan and hope he's dead and so he goes up to the vw bug and he starts the engine he gets it going up to 20 miles per hour towards the river and then he bails out and the car goes into the river and it basically just floats it like he thought it was gonna like sink oh and it just God. i guess vw's are airtight so it just like floats down the river with the headlights still on oh
0: my. God, an so he's an like, idiot.
1: This is a bloody disaster. He's like, because Perry could still be alive. Also, a car floating down a river with the headlights on is certainly going to attract attention. So he's like, I'm basically screwed. He's soaking wet. So he like has to walk in the rain then to this exit where his friend is supposed to pick him up. Which, again, I don't know if this is the same friend. I don't know if this is the different friend. But this is like – I don't know what these people – like have on Gary, Gary or Gary has on them rather because this seems like way over the line for a friend.
0: I mean, okay. if they're just all kind of, you know, bad low lives, Yeah.
1: So Gary's friend drops him off at home at four in the morning and he's super freaked out because he doesn't know if Perry's alive or dead, but he knows that if Perry somehow survived it, he's going to go to prison for a very long time, oh, obviously. Shit. So by 9 a.m., Gary can't take it anymore. He asks his wife to take an overnight trip with him to a town an hour away to run some errands and of course to hide out for what he believes will be the heat of the investigation and he says he wants to make a pit stop to collect some money the Nelsons owe him for some handiwork so Nancy stays in the car and Gary reports back to Sharon yeah so Nancy says that she thought 9am was like too early on like a Saturday to go in somebody's house so she stays in the car Gary runs to the door and he's like hey I told Nancy you owed me some money and she's like is it done and he's like yeah it's done so he gets the word to Sharon that Perry's dead and he takes a hundred dollars from Sharon. Okay. And then he goes and goes off with his wife for a night. So that day, Perry's friends, the Goodheads, which is Donna was the one with yep. the quote about the penis. Can't um they that come name. for a visit. <laughs> Good <Goodhead. laughs> Sharon tells them that he seems to have been delayed in Denver. So he was supposed to be at a conference, and she's like, he's supposed to be back like any time. I don't know what's going on. So they make chit chat, but Sharon is super odd. She mentions that she and Perry had the best sex before he left, which they just think is like weird to pepper into conversation. Yeah, no kidding. And yeah. And so hours go by and the good heads are getting really worried. And they're also weirded out by Sharon because Sharon's just getting drunk. Like she's just drinking cocktail after cocktail, and these people don't drink. So they're just like sitting in her house, like, having ice water, being like, what is your problem? They have no idea where their friend is. So on the news, the Weatherman reports extreme rain and flooding in the Denver area, and Sharon says, Bob, I don't think you'll be ever seeing your friend Perry again. What? And he's like, uh, excuse me? What do you mean? And she goes, just a feeling. I don't know. Like, she literally just drops that. Uh… Okay. Yeah. So they had been there since the afternoon. At 10 PM, she's like shit face. So they leave for their hotel. The next morning, they go back in the morning. Perry still isn't back. And Sharon's like not calling the police. She's not doing anything. She hasn't heard from her husband. She's like, I don't know. I just thought he'd be back by now. So the good heads are like, okay, you have to go down to the Robinsons because she doesn't have a phone at her house.
0: Wow. So she's like,
1: Yeah, she just – so she tells people that it's because the phone company can't come up to where they are because it's so remote. Okay. But right down the hill, the phone company is at the mill. So somebody else later on says that it's bullshit that she likes being out of touch. Got it, got it. Okay. Yeah. So for whatever reason, she still doesn't have a phone at this point. So they go down to the mill at the bottom of the hill and she uses the phone to call the conference and they find out that he never signed in for the conference. So the good heads are really freaked out now. And then they convince her to call the highway patrol and and see if there's been an accident. And at that point they hadn't found the car yet. How? I don't, I don't know. So, so she, like, leaves the report with the highway patrol. By dinnertime that night, Sharon is again wasted, and the good heads are disgusted, and they leave. And they both find Sharon's behavior very fishy. So Sunday morning, 250 miles away from Weston, a jogger finally finds the mangled remains of the VW Bug on the banks of Clear Creek River. Perry and his body... Are nowhere to be found. So he or his corpse have not been found anywhere. So a group of friends and supporters from the area drive to where the car is found to search for Perry. And during this, like, they're all, like, rounding up people in this van to go and join a search party. Sharon actually gropes another man's thigh who's married, like, in the van. And he's thinking – he, like, talked to the author of the book and he's like, okay, maybe she's grieving. I don't know what's going on. And then, like, she keeps – like going towards his inseam of his pants, and he's like, it's so uncomfortable that he like asks his wife to switch places with him. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, he was just like, maybe this is grief, and then he's like, <laughs> and then she just kept like getting closer to his dick, and she's like, he's like, even if this is grief, I feel like I should switch places. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Bad touch. Bad touch. I need an adult. (laughs) So, So yeah, so she's acting very weird. So it finally hits the news and the police are searching by air, but nothing is coming up and Sharon's acting super bizarre. She starts selling and giving away Perry's guns even though people are still searching for him and holding out hope that he's alive. And also Gary is constantly at her house arousing people's suspicions because she has people stopping by with food. And like supporting her. And she's like, A, not worried. B, being like, hey, do you want this thing? Or how much would you give me for this gun of Gary's? And she always has this guy around who's like way too intimate with her. So everyone's like, this is freaking weird. And then within weeks of his disappearance, she puts his office, his remaining office, up for sale. Whoa. So she's selling his practice. So this shocks his friends and family. Some of his friends know how deeply in debt he was, and they actually wonder if it's a conspiracy if Sharon and Perry planned all of this to fake his death and collect the insurance money.
0: Man, that says a lot about how his family and friends thought about
1: him. uh Uh-huh. They're like, yeah. They're like, it's so fishy that there has been no body. Maybe they're in it together. And they they just said that Sharon wasn't grieving normally, so it didn't seem like she really thought – like either she didn't think he was dead or she didn't care, you know? So a month after Perry's disappearance, Sharon stops participating in searches and she starts dissuading his daughters from coming to aid in the search. So she's basically like – Yeah, I decided that it would be really traumatic if I found his body. So I'm just not going to do it because I have to preserve like my own emotional health and stuff. (laughs) Uh So she's like, yeah, I'm just going to not do it. I don't want to. And she tells his daughters not to come and that like her her daughters are like, oh, well, well, can I come to like support you to see the kids? And she's like, no, we're going to be busy. Wow. Yeah. So Gary leaves his wife and moves in with Sharon. So people are appalled at what is happening, but the honeymoon is short-lived. While Sharon and Gary have great sex, they end up hating living together. They actually do not get to like get along in real life at all.
0: Oh, surprise! And surprise! So
1: the, yeah, they both are very stubborn, and and I think that like she can't actually control him the way she wanted to. So he decides to reconcile with Nancy and his remaining teenage son, who's still at home. And Sharon goes back to Buzz Reynolds. Remember old Buzz? Oh yeah, I do. Hmm. So almost a year after Perry's disappearance. Um, Gary and Sharon, though they're like technically broken up, they're still carrying on a like on and off affair. And at this point, Sharon had managed to get some portion of the insurance money, even though there wasn't a a body. So I think at this point, she had managed to get like something like $50,000, even though they, they like the rest of the insurance policies wouldn't pay her. So she had told a friend that she had had – he had already had a couple policies and then she had forged three policies on him only months before the disappearance, which – this is the other thing. She's like such a dummy. Like she's not this like sexy manipulator, like black widow genius. Like she is an impetuous, immature, childish woman who also is like spilling her guts and telling everybody everything. It's it's insane. So – she goes to visit some friends with Gary at some point, and they're complimenting Gary on this necklace that he's wearing. It's like this diamond-studded pendant. And she's like, Oh, yeah, that was um Perry's wedding ring. I melted down to make a necklace for Gary. Oh, and my they're like, god. <laughs> that is the most cold-blooded thing I've ever heard. You melted down your your dead husband's wedding ring, which we don't even know if he's dead, to make a pendant necklace for your lover. Wow. Yep. So in August of 1984, a body is finally found. And so I saw on one program that they definitely very positively identified that it was Perry and that they identified it through dental records. And that he had fractures to his head, but they were also – could have been in line with him getting swept away in the water and his head hitting rocks, you know? Uh So they totally – like said it was an accident but a lot of people in town are very suspicious because the body had originally been identified as a man in his 30s when Perry was 50 weird so the yeah the body was also still wearing clothes and people thought that was interesting because the VW bug was like practically reduced to scraps from going down the river so it seems interesting that the body would still be very much intact to the point where he was still wearing all of his clothes and that he they had Sharon come in and identify him, but if he had been in the wilderness for a year, it doesn't seem like there'd be anything to identify. No. So it's very suspicious this whole identification process. And basically, Sharon says, "Of course it's him," which she would have said that about anyone. And she immediately cremates him without asking his family about any of their wishes. Crazy. Whatever, it, whether it was him or not, she gets the money.
0: Oh, man. Um. So now
1: she can collect. The two hundred thousand dollars of leftover insurance money. So altogether, she gets like two hundred and fifty, so quarter million dollars, which is like. in today's money. So she gets the money finally. She ends up giving Gary $10,000 in cash, and then she also gives him a six-month CD for $55,000. So that's a certificate of deposit, which basically means he can get it in six months. Hmm. So Gary gets $65,000 for his trouble in all of this. Trouble. So... Yeah, Sharon and Gary remain on and off, and she cannot get him to divorce Nancy for good and marry him, which is kind of funny to me. I think that must have driven her crazy. For sure. Yeah, like she had managed to get all of these men to do everything for her. And I mean, she really – she got Gary to kill a man for her, but he won't leave his wife. And so I think it drives her nuts being like, what does Nancy have that I don't have? Like, how dare you? Like, I give you the best sex of your life. You're willing to do everything for me, and you won't divorce your wife and marry me, you know? What does she do? Uh, well, in this part of the book, she really, really pisses me off. Um, she has all this money now and she is still so shitty that she loves to dine and ditch. She goes to restaurants and leaves without paying. The worst. I worst. I was like, okay. Like I'm talking about somebody who's manipulated people into murdering. And this is like the last straw for me. (laughs) This is where I know you're a crappy person because Andy and I have both waited tables or bartended in our lives. And if you dine and ditch, chances are your server has to pay the bill out of their tips, meaning they might have worked an entire day for nothing. Yeah, it's so fucked up. It's so shitty. And to the point where she gets kicked out of a certain pizza hut because she keeps doing it and literally a teenage server has to like find her in the parking lot and be like you didn't pay you need to pay your bill oh my god how embarrassing yeah she's a terrible person she also shoplifts just because she can gary at this point is like why would you do this you have all that money and she's like it's just for the thrill of it and because i can like she is doing the stuff because she believes she can. Unbelievable. The summer of 1984 a couple things happen. 15 year old Rochelle, her oldest daughter, moves back in with her. At this point um, the dad was like, you're a teenager you can make a decision about who you want to live with. And Rochelle decides that she wants to live with Sharon. And Sharon prepares to marry Buzz Reynolds. So Buzz Reynolds, good old Buzz is back in the picture. Oh man, poor Buzz. So I know. The morning her parents arrive from Maryland to attend the wedding, Sharon is in bed with gary so they literally come to her wedding for her wedding weekend and when they arrive at her house she is in flagrante with another man who is not her intended husband oh my god so her parents are appalled they are so disgusted with her that they just turn around and leave they don't stay for the wedding wow i mean i wonder if
0: she knew about the timing and did it on
1: purpose of course it
0: seems like she they just all hate each other
1: Mm -hmm. So they leave. They literally like get there, turn around and leave and drive all the way back to Maryland because they hate her so much. And Sharon goes through with the wedding, which amounts to a backyard pool party at the ranch with like a fun band and about 100 locals. But it turns out that the wedding isn't legally binding. It was like a big party and for show. But Buzz is smart enough not to marry this woman. Wow. Buzz coming in strong. Buzz has been pretty on top of this whole thing. So immediately after the wedding, which isn't a real wedding, she wants Gary to kill Buzz. And Gary says no, A, because Perry's body has just been found, so it would be too much of a coincidence if another one of her husbands no died. Yeah. And B, she's not legally married to Buzz, so there's no promise she'd actually inherit anything. So I don't know if he had told her he was putting her in the will or if she had – You, I think you can still get an insurance policy on somebody if you're not married to them. It's possible. Or like you can be the beneficiary if you're not married. So I don't know what she had going on, but she – Gary was basically like, no, I'm not doing this. And so she's pissed at Gary for that. From 1985 to 1986, Sharon bounces between Buzz, Gary, and a new man named Henry. And Henry introduces underage Rochelle to a 21-year-old named Bart. And it gets, like, really messy with, like, Henry and Bart and Rochelle and... All of these people and eventually somehow Henry finds out about the murder and so Sharon pays him $5,000 to like leave town and not tell anyone about what he's found out. Crazy. So at this point, I guess it looks like Gary finally left Nancy or at least that's what he's telling Sharon and – Now, Rochelle is only like 16 or 17 at this point, and Sharon plans a double wedding for them. She says she's going to marry Gary, and literal teenage Rochelle is going to marry Bart. Oh, my God. Can you imagine your mom like forcing you into a double wedding with her when you're like 16 years old? It's horrible. I mean, it's just exactly what her parents did to her too at 18. Exactly. So they're all planning to do this, but Gary stands Sharon up, and – They're still there. So like Sharon tells Bart and Rochelle to go through with it. So now her daughter is a teenage bride and she is just really pissed. So she breaks up with Gary and she's done with Buzz too because he's not legally marrying her. So at this point, it's spring of 1987, Sharon spots a personal ad in a free Denver newspaper. It's from a lonely firefighter named Glenn Harrelson, and Sharon is intrigued. Oh, my God. Glenn, I know, we all know where this is going from the beginning. (laughs) Glenn is an extremely well-respected Vietnam vet and longtime firefighter. He had a 22-year-old 22 year old he had a 22year marriage that ended in 1984 and he has two almost grown older teenagers they're like around Rochelle's age okay. he's kind of a shy guy and he had trouble striking up conversations with women in bars basically his first wife was actually named Andy oh no way uh, yeah and Andy was like his like I think like high school love you know so he'd only really been with one woman for a very long time and they ultimately just kind of drifted apart it wasn't a big thing they were still best friends they just weren't in love anymore oh, Okay. So I, I don't think he knew how to like hit on women. So he did the personal ads as a way to like kind of force him out of his shell and in like a nice way to meet people without having to like go up to women in bars and stuff. Yeah. So unlucky for him, the very second woman he meets through the ad is Sharon. Within a month of dating, Sharon and her kids move in with Glenn. Oh my God such a nightmare so glenn's over the moon about this he's definitely the kind of guy who really likes being committed he loves having a wife he's super craving stability and someone to come home to however sharon likes living with him but she surprisingly doesn't seem keen to get married she tells him her first marriage ended in divorce and the second in a horrible accident and that maybe being married to her is bad luck but this only makes Glenn want to marry her more. So I don't know at this point if she realized, like, she was having bad luck getting men mar- to marry her at this point. Like, Buzz didn't marry her. Yeah. Gary won't marry her. So maybe she's like, maybe I'm going in too hot and heavy and I have to act like I don't want to yeah. get married. Yeah. yeah. So she's telling him that. But at the end of 1987, she actually breaks up with Glenn and moves back to the mountain house. So it seems like – this is what I think happened. So it seems like some sort of reconciliation happened with Gary at this point. And I believe, like, that she was, like, at some point they got into a fight or something and she kind of said, I could have gotten that firefighter to marry me. And I think that this is when the two of them concoct a plan for her to actually marry Glenn and kill him for insurance got it, money. Got it.
0: Got it. Okay. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because very shortly, like after that, by early 1988, Sharon and Glenn are back together and they go from broken up to engaged like in a week. Yeah, has to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they run into one of his friends outside of an insurance agency and the beaming Glenn announces that the couple is engaged. And when they're like, she's like, oh, what are you guys doing now? Are you going to celebrate? He's like, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're going to the insurance agency to add Sharon as the beneficiary to my policy. Oh my God. So she did not waste any time. So they get married June second, nineteen eighty eight, at a courthouse, and Sharon's wearing shorts, sandals, and a tank top. Like she didn't even wouldn't you bother
0: dressing up? Want your ex wife and children to be the beneficiaries? Like I just don't
1: understand. Not, I mean, I don't know what kind of sex mojo special sauce this lady had. Literally, early. she had power. <laughs> literal. <laughs> so the weird thing is, is that. Sharon refuses to move in with Glenn again. So they're married now, and she stays living in the mountain house. She says she doesn't want her kids to be raised in the city, and if the marriage is going to survive, it's going to have to be a commuter one. And whenever he brings up that married people should live together, um she says like well then fine you need to find a different wife then you don't get to be with me because i'm not living with you and so he's like okay well would you consider finding a house in castle rock which is close enough to denver that he can still easily get to work but it's still a rural atmosphere for the kids and sharon just refuses to consider it so on november 15th 1988 Sharon is canoodling in bed with Gary at the Mountain House when she says to him, I want it done before Thanksgiving. Glenn's mother is coming in from Des Moines, and I don't want to spend the holidays with her. I can't stand her. So she is cold as ice. is that terrible? So meanwhile Glenn told friends things were going poorly in his still newlywed relationship. He knew Gary was back in the picture because he had found his brand of cigarette butts around Sharon's mountain house. She blows hot and cold with him all the time. He's left lonely and miserable most of the time. Like he didn't he didn't get married so he'd be alone at his house, no, you uh, know. So he confides in his friends and his ex-wife that he fears he made a terrible mistake in marrying Sharon. Obviously. Yeah. So Sharon gives Gary a house key to Glenn's home and takes her children to a neighbor's home for dinner and a movie to establish an alibi. She's wearing a Denver fire department shirt and raving about Glenn to her neighbor, even saying Glenn and I had the best sex last night, just like she did to the good heads about Perry. Meanwhile, on November 18th, 1988, the same night, just after 8 p.m., Gary parks his car at a bar about a mile away from Glenn's house and follows Sharon's hand-drawn map to find his home. By 8:30 p.m. he is standing outside of 12370 Columbine Court in the freezing night air. He's armed with a 22 caliber pistol and an 18-inch lead pipe. Oh my god. His plan, uh-huh, his plan is to make it look like a burglary gone wrong and hide any evidence with a fire. By 8.45 p.m., he has cased the joint and is laying in wait for Glenn, whom, according to Sharon, never gets home any later than 9 p.m. When Glenn enters the house and closes the door behind him, Gary attacks, hitting him over the head twice with a pipe. But once again, Glenn doesn't go down easy. He's not knocked out. It's hard to do this. Gary's track record is horrible. Yeah, he's not a good killer. Mm Mm-mm. They begin to scuffle. Gary panics and he shoots Glenn twice in the head. Whoa. Yeah. So he then covers Glenn's body with gasoline and sets him ablaze. Well, he like goes upstairs and he gets like the coins. He like panics essentially because he doesn't know how to make this look like a burglary. So he gets the coins and he sets his body on fire. And he ends up like trekking back to his car going up to Sharon's house at four in the morning and telling her it's finished. So when news of Glenn's death reaches friends and family, everyone is shocked. A fireman dying in a fire in his own house? It seems unfathomable. Everybody's like, he seemed really bummed out about Sharon. Could he have killed himself? But that seems weird. Then he would light his house on fire. That doesn't make himself? Sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like everyone's trying to figure out what happened, but they also know like – if they don't know that he shot himself yet, they just know there was a fire at his house and they're like – and that he's dead. And so they're like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Like if any fireman would know where his exits are, that he would know how to get himself out in the case of fire, you know? <laughs> like it's very, very fishy. Um, and nobody, of course, can get a hold of Sharon because she doesn't have a phone. So eventually Glenn's mother calls Rochelle at the home she shares with Bart and tells her the terrible news. Now Rochelle didn't know anything about this plan. Um, Rochelle's horrified and they, her and her husband Bart drive directly to Sharon's and let her know what happened. Rochelle like holds her while her mother like fake cries. At this point Rochelle is surprised her mom is reacting so violently because she never seemed to really care for her husband and they had been married for like way less than a year at this point. So her reaction is very dramatic. So, Rochelle is like really surprised, but she's still like comforting her mother. And eventually, she pulls herself together enough to tell the kids that their stepfather has passed away. And then, this is heartbreaking. Nine year old Danny Nelson, upon hearing the news, says, Mommy, why do all of our daddies die?
0: Oh my God.
1: Ugh. Isn't that terrible? Because
0: your mommy's an evil, crazy bitch. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. So the detectives drive up to the mountain house to interview Sharon and they are immediately suspicious. They inform inform her she needs to come down to the station the next day. They're aware of Perry's untimely demise and the gossip in the small town leads them to Gary Adams as well. So like Ooh. everybody knows what's been going on at this house. So the next day at the interview, they press her hard about the murders and her extramarital affairs. And so she mentions, like, Buzz. She talks about that other guy, Henry, but she's very, like, keen not to mention Gary and they make note of it. And so they keep pushing and eventually, like, one of the male detectives, it's like a female male partner, the male detective starts playing nice cop with her and he's like – we know you didn't kill him, but we think you know who did and we we know you're a victim in this too and that you're probably scared of whoever killed your husband and we just want to like help you out and we'll protect you. Like we'll make sure that you're safe if you like have to testify against somebody. So she feels like, oh, maybe I can like turn this on Gary. Yeah, this is where the not get the out, right comes in because the second they bust mm-hmm. Gary, he's going to call her out. Uh-huh. So he, she's like, hmm. Okay. So the wheels start turning and she's like, okay, I will talk, but I don't want to talk here. She's like, there's like – the walls have ears here at the police station. Like, I, I want to go somewhere else where I feel comfortable and I'll tell you the whole story. So the detective's like, sure. She's like, also, I want my kids with me. We have to go to my daughter's house and pick up my kids. So the detective's like, okay, well, where are we going? She's like, no, we'll just like get on the highway. I'll tell you where we're going to go so she like is – has some control in this situation. They pick up the kids and they start driving and they're like, okay, are we going to drive all the way to Denver? Because they're like heading in there towards Denver. And she's like, oh, just pull over here. And she gives them instructions, the place where she feels most comfortable talking. It's Pizza Hut. It's literally the Pizza Hut she had been kicked out of before. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and she's hungry she wants pizza she literally makes them order pizza
1: <laughs> which also sounds really good right now oh i really god. want some pizza hut too <laughs> oh my god this little personal pan this some lady. garlic knots, <laughs> maybe a little stuffed crust yum <laughs> Yum. So they all order pizza, and then after the kids eat, they let them play arcade games while she spills her guts. So she tries to pin both murders completely on Gary. She says that he's like an insane, jealous lover, that he definitely killed both of her husbands. She doesn't know exactly the details, but they were without her knowledge or consent. Basically, she says that she found out – about perry after it was already done and she did give him some of the insurance money but mostly because she was scared of him
0: oh my god okay
1: yeah and so they're like well if you were scared of him why did you keep getting back together with him and she's like i don't know i'm just like under his spell i'm just a battered woman like she tried to say like she was just like a battered woman that was under his control so horrible Yeah, she's such a liar. So both Sharon and Gary are arrested for first-degree murder for both men, and Sharon's completely shocked. She feels like she was betrayed by them because she thought she was going to, like, somehow get out Uh of this scot-free, and they saw right through her. Um, Sharon almost immediately pleads guilty, avoiding two lengthy murder trials. So she claims this is to spare her children the trial, which is such a valid point because think of everything I've told you, what would have come out in that tra- trial and been like all over the media. Yeah, it would have been real bad for her. And then other people think it wasn't potentially just her – it wasn't just like saving her kids, like the pain and suffering. It was also because they took the death penalty off the table. Oh, yeah. So she was also saving her own skin. Yeah. And yeah, it seems like she's always been affected by how people have thought about her, you know? hmm Oh, my God. The details that would have come out in that trial, yeah. it would have been sensational. Yeah. yeah, which I think is why this is kind of an under-the-radar story is because there wasn't a big media trial yeah. about this, yeah. you know? So Gary also ends up just pleading guilty, so he doesn't have a trial as well. And at first, he holds out longer, and he insists through his attorney that he is innocent. But he does end up pleading guilty after it's confirmed that Sharon would testify against him. And because he blabbed in jail, a jailhouse snitch tells the police the location of the gun he used to kill Glenn. So they find the gun and they match the ballistics, guys. I know.
0: Just shut your mouth. We're not, Just dumb me out. No, That's all you got to do. We're not working with the brightest crayons in the box over here. <laughs> no, we are
1: not. So Sharon claims to this day she was manipulated by the detectives into a confession that she was a battered woman who had feared for her life. Um, she still plays the victim whenever she's of talking course. to anyone and her children no longer speak to her, any of them. Gary maintains he still loves Sharon and is blunt about his involvement in the murders. He does, however, stand by his statement that Perry was alive when he last saw him. So some of the detectives think that he actually did drown Perry and send him down the river, but he's like, no, I've told you everything. I told you I killed Glenn. I swear to God he was alive the last time I saw him. The five children of Perry Nelson jointly sued the insurance companies that paid out to Sharon. As more information came to light, it appeared that the insurance investigators actually kind of knew what was going on. Stop. Yeah. So they had been running a crazy case file on Sharon. They knew that Perry was not alone when he left Trinidad that night. They might have known that it was Gary who was with him, but they knew someone was with him. They knew all of the suspicious timing of the policies in the six weeks before Perry's disappearance. They knew that Gary moved in very soon after the discovery. And they also had noted that she had been giving and selling all of Perry's possessions and immediately, they had a bunch of information on her that they never shared with the police. So essentially, they're like, A, they shouldn't have paid out the money. B, If they had shared the information with the police, then Glenn Harrelson could have potentially still been alive. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So this ends up in court for a decade just about, going back and forth whether the kids get the payout or not. And eventually it ends in 1996 and the children all get the payout equally divided among all of them with interest. So, so the insurance went, company
0: just ended up paying double.
1: Yeah. So they had paid they had paid her and then they had to pay the same amount to the kids eventually. Crazy. Yeah. So that's it. The kids got their money. They don't have a relationship with their fathers, unfortunately. Yeah and they don't have a relationship with their mother because she's a conniving, evil sociopath. What happened to Danny? I don't know. I didn't look up the kids because I always feel bad, like, unless they do interviews, like, looking up what they're doing with their life. I know. I just, it's like I hope he's he, okay. his
0: dad died, and then she went to jail.
1: Yeah, and Misty, too. They had a younger daughter named Misty. Yeah. yeah. So those kids don't have any parents. Ugh,
0: poor kids. Poor babies.
1: Yeah, they were probably, like, a little older than us. I think they were, like, 19 19- – 80 1983. I don't know what I said. <laughs> well, that
0: was that was
1: quite a story. Yes. Also, guys, I don't have any fun like Wikipedia facts or anything to end this one on, so I was thinking what could be really like interesting way to end episodes where we don't have anything fun is if you wanted to send me some of your craziest bad date stories, Ooh. like something... Yeah. I Like, I want to hear if they're, like, comically bad or, like, love, murder, I almost went out with a serial killer bad. We'll take them all. We'll take them all. So if you have any good stories, please send them to lovers at lovemurder.love and um, just indicate whether or not we you want us to use your name when we tell the story. Because <laughs> we don't want to blow your spot up. No, so definitely we'd love to hear that <laughs> for you. In closing, don't fire your best employee because your wife's a hussy, especially if her name is Barb. Don't dine and ditch on your deep dish. No, don't ever do that. And as always, remember, we're all just one bad relationship away from getting murdered. (laughs) Bye. 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 Sleep tight.